be seated. I invite you to join me now in taking your copy of God's Word and turning back with me to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, right there between Ezra and Esther, Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Of course, we were away from this book for about two and a half months due to uh, an Advent season and how January worked itself out, but last Sunday we came back to this book. We uh, came back to the study with a review of the first four chapters, and that brings us now to our passage this morning, and whereas we read, we'll find that there is still more trouble that's surrounding the restoration and rebuilding of the wall, but the problem is no longer outside the wall, the problem is now with inside, within, with, within and inside the wall, uh, to put it bluntly, Satan has made it through the gate and is running havoc within the covenant community there. And so we'll see that in our reading of God's word this morning. So let me pray for us as we uh, take this time to come together for God's word. Father, for, for many of us it's been a long week. For many of us, it's been a stressful week. Uh, for many of us, it's been a week where maybe we don't always know if we're coming or if we're going. You have called us to live a life that's been redeemed by you in the midst of a world that's fallen and broken by sin. So it's not always an easy life. But it's a blessed life because it's a life lived in and for you. And in this life, we have here the, the climax of our week. We gathered together as your people to worship you, and now in our worship of you, to come before your word, to hear you speak to us through this word, how it applies to our lives and to our faith, and how we can continue to live a life blessed by you according to this word. So as we come to this passage in Nehemiah, O oh Lord, we pray that you will indeed meet with us through the gracious ministry of your Holy Spirit. He will enable us to hear and understand your word and to take that word and to apply it exactly where it needs to be applied so we may be encouraged in our walk in and for you. Do this, O oh Lord, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, I invite you to join me now in standing for the word, for the reading of God's word. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us eat grain that we may eat and keep alive. There are also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there are those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax in our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as are their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel of myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. 
but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I, my brothers, and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. We live in a day, an age, and a world in which issues often can be very easily politicized. And when these issues become politicized, then they also become a barometer of where an individual stands politically. I'm sure each of us can think of an issue that when you tell somebody else where you stand on that issue, you know you're also, uh, is, that is equal to putting a flag on the ground displaying where you stand politically. If you tell them this is how I believe in this issue, then you are staking your place politically on where you stand on that. And this easy politicizing of issues has sadly made its way into the church. The issues that are meant to be first and foremost biblical have now been hijacked in one way or another by political forces and parties to further their agenda for power. So we can think of how biblical issues such as abortion, gender, and sexuality have in some ways become more political issues than biblical issues. And when you state where you stand on that issue, you're more, in a sense, putting down a flag, putting a flag on the ground where you stand politically, more so than you are saying where you stand biblically. And my fear is that for the church, and I mean this generally, not, not just us, but generally speaking, that our views of these issues are more informed and motivated politically than they are biblically. It seems that many in the church are now more concerned about towing the right party line on issues such as abortion, gender, and sexuality, then they are concerned about what the Bible teaches. At the end of it, they're more concerned about whether or not they are in line with the Republican Party or in line with the Democratic Party on this issue. When what every Christian should be asking is, am I in line with Jesus on this issue? Not what the elephant or what the donkey has to say. Am I in line with Jesus on this issue? Does the Bible inform my view on this? Or does Fox News? Or CNN? Do politicians and politics inform my view on this more than the Bible does? And as Christians, our, our view on this issue should be shaped first by God and by His Word for us to make sure that we are thinking and acting as a Christian. And I would say we can add on to those issues that have become politicized 
The issue of caring for the poor. If you pay attention to politics, you know this has become a very politicized subject. Each party has each political party has a view on how we are to on how we are to view the poor and how they should be cared for. As elections come around, you hear these views espoused. But as Christians, our concern should be first and foremost is what does God teach us about poverty? Not what this politician says, not what this commentator says, not what not what this political institution says. Rather, what does God tell us about the poor? And how does God say, what does God say about how we are to treat them and how we are to care for them? And I think the question is, sitting here this morning, is it God's word that has shaped our views and actions on poverty? Or has it been the Republicans or the Democrats? Or this commentator on Fox News or this commentator on MSNBC? Is God the one shaping our views on poverty? As we read in our passage this morning that poverty and the treatment of the poor has become a major issue for God's people during this project of restoring and rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Now, according to the timeline, we are probably about a month or two into this project, so there should have been a noticeable difference in the condition of the wall. You could look around and say, oh, they've made progress here and here and here. But as we see in verses 1 through 5, that while the rebuilding continued and seemed to be going well, a large number of God's people were crying out against others in their community. They were hungry. And this hunger was leading to extreme poverty and creating stresses that, that threatened to tear them apart. There was a famine, so there was a lack of food, and people were having to mortgage their lands just to survive. And there were those who, as loan payments were coming due, they were having to sell their children into slavery. Now that, that first group of those who were hungry leading to extreme poverty, they, they were enlisted, they have enlisted themselves in Nehemiah's unpaid workforce and emergency army. And so this would have taken away from their daily work to provide for their families. So this means they had no money to buy food. They're poor. They are in poverty. But remember, it's not because they're lazy. It's not because they don't want to get out, out of bed in the morning and go work. They are working. And they're working hard. They're restoring and rebuilding the wall. That's hard work. Now, as we saw at the end of chapter 4, they're also taking on extra shifts, standing guard for others while they are rebuilding the wall. So at the end of a long day, when the men come home, they come home to hungry children, and they come home to wives who are angry because they are at their wit's end. We see in verse 1, reference to, to the people and their wives, in verse 2, the sons and daughters. This suggests that there's domestic strifes. Wives are upset. Because they're not able to feed their children. They're hearing their children whine all day long. And they're all hungry and they're at their wit's end. So here they are. They're being brought out of exile. They're coming back to the homeland. They're rebuilding this wall. But none of that is putting food on the table. They're poor. And they're living in poverty. And this is all happening in the context of them doing the Lord's work on the wall. But they're not the only group who's having trouble. There's another group which consists of those who own their land, 
but now they're having to mortgage their property in order to buy food. There's a famine. So this necessitates that they have to mortgage their property as security against loans so they can buy grain for planting. So their condition is not as serious as those of the first group. They had no money at all. They're not able to eat. But this group, they have a problem. And it's one that threatens to get worse. And they're worried because they're, they're worried about their means to pay out their mortgages from the harvest, which is just a few months away. So as poor as these crops must have been in these conditions, the prospect for a decent harvest sufficient to repay the loans didn't look good. They're going to go into debts. And as they say, the only way they can, the only way they can deal with their debt was they would have to sell their children into slavery in order to pay that debt. Now I want us to stop there and think about that. For any of us who are parents, imagine that you are out and you're having to get a loan so you can pay for your family to be fed. And then one day you have to come home and sit at the dinner table and look at your children and say, Mommy and Daddy cannot pay off this loan. So we're going to have to sell you into slavery. Can you imagine that sort of situation? Can you imagine looking at your child in the eye and saying, Sorry, I don't have enough money for you. I'm going to sell you off into slavery. So we talk about poverty. There's times it's easy for us to look at from just a purely economic level. But Nehemiah here in this situation is giving us a look into the emotional level of what it means to be poor for these people. And again, this is not their fault. This isn't a situation they are in because they're lazy or they just don't know how to, to take care of the land. They're not good with money. No, there's a famine that is forcing them into looking into having to go into poverty. So you have those who are hungry. You have those who are facing loans to pay off and they might have to sell their children to servitude. But now there's another group. And their problem is with taxes. The taxes are based on the ownership of their land. Now since they have already mortgaged their property... The, the servicing of this debt was now bringing many of them to the point to where they have to sell their children into a form of slavery. But their problem gets worse than that. Some of them have already, some of their daughters have already been sold into slavery. And the family doesn't have the means of money or land to redeem them out of slavery. And one commentator suggests that the singling out of dollars in verse 5 means that the next step of this was that the daughters would have to be used to gratify the creditor's lust as payment for delaying foreclosure on the loans. I don't know how much further we have to go for you to understand what that means. That a family is looking at having to sell their daughter into prostitution in order to foreclose, delay foreclosure on the loans. They're hungry, they don't have money, and their family is raveling, is coming unraveled, falling apart. Things are not going well in Jerusalem. It's not all roses and sunshine in the city. And all this lands at the feet of Nehemiah. He's the leader, and the buck stops with him. It's not his fault. 
But as usual, the people's frustration with the situation is taking out on the leader. And so they come to Drew, they come to Nehemiah, and they go, "Look, you're the leader. What are you going to do about this? We're poor. We're hungry. We're scared. Nehemiah, what are you going to do to help us?" And what seemed that the first thing he could do would be to halt the rebuilding of the work around the wall and to halt it immediately to allow the men to tend to their families and to return to work. He could say, okay, listen, we're going to pause work. Y'all go out, get your affairs in order. After you get your affairs in order, come back and we're going to get right back into work. But that would work right in the saints' hands, wouldn't it? If he can stop work on the wall, it's not a far cry that he can make his way up the hill and stop work on the temple. If he stops work on the temple, then there's no worship. It's like a chess game. So if you stop work on the wall, it can all come falling apart. And if you stop work, what's the certainty it would begin again? There is no certainty. We've all seen a big project that gets started and for some reason has to, work has to be paused on it. And we know there's a high likelihood it won't get started back up again. And they have the momentum, they have, they have the momentum that they need to keep going. Think about the zeal of these people that as they're facing this poverty and, and, and famine and their, and their family coming apart, they're still coming to work. They still believe in this ministry. They, they at least for a while have considered the work of God as being of greater importance than the need of their own families and livelihoods. So there's, there's this momentum to get this done. And Nehemiah cannot ignore the depth of trouble that these folks have fallen into. This isn't poverty we see on the news or we see in pictures. This is poverty at his doorstep. Times were about as bad as they could be for some of them, not just for themselves, but also for their families. We know it's like it's one thing for you to suffer. It's another thing for your family member to suffer and for you to feel rightly or wrongly that you are responsible for their suffering. But then we're told what makes matters worse is that the immediate cause of suffering lay at the hands of fellow Jews. Jews have turned on Jews. Their own people are making their lives hard and miserable. Their own people are leading them into poverty for their own gain. The people they go to church with, that they sit in the choir with, they sit in the pews with, that they break bread with, those same people are putting these families into a situation where they're in great poverty. So Satan's at work. He is dividing Jew from Jew and bringing instability into the camp of Israel. He's affecting the worship of God's people. Now this is a far greater threat than anything that external enemies could bring you bring on those enemies who, with their shields and their swords and their chariots, we can deal with that. But you've got Satan at work within the camp. And he's turning Jew against Jew. And he's making his way into the worship. And you're having to sit there next to the guy who has taxed you so much that now you have to think about selling your daughter and the prostitution. Satan is at work and Satan is being victorious. And he's doing it through the means of poverty. And in this, he is trying to disrupt God's work. 
So what is Nehemiah supposed to do? Well, for a moment, I want you to try and put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes. These three groups have shown up to your doorstep. Say, you're the leader. Here's the problem. Take care of it. How would you respond? I can only speak for myself. But that would happen to me. I think of those scenes like in movies and cartoons where the person excuses himself. And they leave and you hear the window open. And footsteps going across the driveway and the car door slamming and, car, and the tires screeching and making its way out. That's, think what I would do. That group of people showed up into my study over here. I'd say, excuse me, I need to go to the restroom. I'd make my way through those doors right there. And you'd hear the outside doors close really quickly and my truck start up and I'd go off in the other direction. Because it seems almost insurmountable. And you would feel responsible. Is it me that has led to such a situation? But let's look at Nehemiah's response. Look at verses 6 and 7. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. And I took counsel of myself. What did Nehemiah do? He got mad. The exploitation of his people. The exploitation of the poor angered him and he showed it. And for Nehemiah, it's kind of a two-level. Not only is it how, how dare this happen to my people, to God's people, but more so, how, how dare it happen, excuse me, how dare it happen to God's people because of God's people? We're all supposed to be in this together. We're all Jews, we're Israelites, we're all of the same God. And yet we're going to treat each other this way. And so Nehemiah, from his faithfulness, and his God-given wisdom, he gets angry and he let it be known. Maybe, uh, maybe he slammed his fist on the table. And hopefully it was louder than that. Imagine it was louder than that. Or maybe he kicked over the table. But he let his anger be known. But then he steps away and he carefully considers the charges that have been brought to him and he takes counsel with himself. Anger is a dangerous emotion. It's difficult to control, and you can rarely make a good decision when you are angry. So Nehemiah, in his wisdom, responds or to, to avoid responding in kind and saying and doing things he might later regret. He takes a moment or two to consider his response. And I would imagine, I believe, this included some time of prayer. It doesn't say that. It says Nehemiah took counsel with himself. But if we think back to chapter 1, when the big issue came up of the wall surrounding Jerusalem being disrepaired, remember what Nehemiah did. We, we talked about this last week. He prayed first. He prayed most. He prayed often. He prayed persistently. That when Nehemiah saw a problem, it moved him to prayer. And so again, even though our text doesn't say that, I believe that given this is his usual posture we've been told about, Nehemiah made some time to pray about this. Maybe he just needs to step out in the hallway and pray for, for wisdom and for grace and for patience so he didn't go out and waylay those people who were causing this. After being angry and taking counsel, he calls a meeting of the nobles and the officials. Nehemiah is faithful. He knows the Bible. He knows passages such as Exodus 21, 1 through 11, 
Deuteronomy 24, and Leviticus 25. And so Nehemiah takes on the position of a prosecutor and he brings charges against the nobles and the officials. So here he is, he brings together kind of all the, the high power money people and he charges them. He says, you have been exacting interest from your fellow countrymen and you are profiting from their suffering and that's forbidden. We think of Deuteronomy 20, 23. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. So at this meeting where they're all gathered Nehemiah accuses them not only of being, not only being kind of says unethical businessmen, but he is accusing them of disobeying the law of God. So he said to them, instead of showing mercy, you've taken advantage of the situation. Instead of looking out for those in need, you've only looked out for yourself. And you are the ones responsible for this. The ones who should care the most are the ones who are caring the least and leading to poverty for those that they should be cared for. Their own blood. Their own spiritual brothers and sisters. People they go to church with. They watch their babies get baptized. Went to their weddings. And they're the ones responsible for this. We see in verse 10 that Nehemiah includes himself in his wrongdoing. Like a good leader, he doesn't hide behind somebody else. He puts himself in the front. But commentators differ exactly on what it is that Nehemiah is confessing. Is Nehemiah confessing that he has done the same thing? He's a man of means. He's lent money to needy people and charged them some interest, seeing it no more, as a, no more than a business opportunity. Is he saying that leaders make mistakes? Or... Is he saying, I've lent money, but I've done it biblically. I haven't extorted my kin. Well, either way, he's submitting himself to God and to his word to do what is right. And then at the end of this, in a manner reminiscent of the prophets, Nehemiah engages in an act of symbolism. Verse 13, I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. This was, a, this was a practice that would have been well known to the people. You would hide treasure objects in a fold of your long, long flowing garments kept secure by a belt. So when Nehemiah shook out his garment, it caused all of his precious items to fall to the ground. Everybody saw it knew what that meant. If they did not heed Nehemiah's charges, God would shake them from his embrace and safekeeping. And so at the addition of words of a solemn curse, the matter was now sealed. But we're not Jewish. Most of us here are Gentiles. And we're not in Jerusalem during the time of this story. So what does this mean for us? What does a story like this mean for us? The first thing I think it means is that when we allow our interests our financial interests, or even political interests to first define an issue before God does, it will inevitably lead to trouble. God in his word should always define how we think of these issues. He should define how we think of the poor and how we treat them. Not the world defined, not ourselves, not our bank accounts. See, these 
folks saw this saw situation as an opportunity. But it wasn't an opportunity to be Christ-like. It was an opportunity to fatten their pockets and turn a blind eye to the poverty of the people and the poverty they were creating. So as they were looking at buying a beach house and a condo in their mountains, in the mountains, their kin was selling off their children. Be like you sitting here. You just bought the new waterfront place at Edisto. And you're looking at a nice condo in Boone or Hendersonville. And their children you taught Sunday school are now in slavery because of how you charge interest on them. And that cute little baby you saw baptized 15 years ago is now being sold off to people to do God knows what to them. Also, you can afford that new car to get around in. You see, when we don't come to God and have him define these issues for us, we will find a disconnect from the faith that he's entrusted to us. And when it comes to the issue of poverty, we're told in Proverbs 19.17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. We think what, Matthew, or what Jesus says in Matthew 25, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. If we know anything about Christianity, we know that we are called to look after those in need. That's how the deacons were founded. That's what we see the early church doing. That's what we see the church for generations doing. Opening up orphanages. Going out to the poor. Helping those who were in need. How does James define true religion? Looking after widows and orphans, those who are in need. And I think somewhere along the line, we as a conservative church lost our bearing. And I think we lost our bearing with liberalism. Because we saw the liberal church start to take on the social gospel. And the social gospel basically said, you become a Christian by the way you help the poor. And so as usual, we throw the baby out with the bathwater. And for a church that used to be known for the way they looked after the poor, we're not known for that. Not anymore, and I'm saying it in a general sense. But I think we also have to keep in mind how we define what is true poverty and what is willing poverty. There are those who are in poverty for reasons that are outside of their control. And they genuinely need help. They're willing to work and they will work hard. But circumstances outside their control has put them in poverty and they genuinely need help. Then there are those who are in poverty willingly. They've learned how to work the system. They know how to get aid and help from other people. They know how to live off of our tax dollars so they don't have to work and they get to do what they want to do. If you go into our secretary's office, on her phone is a post-it note with a name and three phone numbers. This lady calls here once a month. Every month she calls here, always looking for help with something else different. Came in this morning, there was a message on the machine that she needed help for medicine. But she won't work. 
We've helped her before and we've come to find out what she does is once a month she takes out the yellow pages and she starts calling through the churches. So I came in one day, uh, it was after my day off, and she had left three messages over the course of two hours. She had forgotten she had called this church. And each time she called back, each message was a different reason for why she needed help. There are those who are in poverty willingly because they will not work. And the Bible helps us with this perspective, with this very blunt assessment in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Think about that. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, are not busy at work, but are busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. That's the barometer. The Bible calls for us to help those who are truly in poverty. They are not able to work. For reasons and circumstances outside their control, they're not able to provide for their family as, we, as they ought to. And again, we remember what Jesus says, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Flip it around, so I think we know it from the NIV. As you did it to one of the least of these, and you did it to me. Because if you think of the example in the life of Jesus, Jesus was poor. Didn't have a pillow to lay his head on, didn't have a house to call his own. Let us follow the example of Jesus that we find Nehemiah by having pity on those who are truly poor and do what we can to help them. Because the faith that has been entrusted to us is a faith that calls us to help the least of those. Because it's exactly what God has done for us in Christ. Spiritually, we are the least. We were born dead in our sins and trespasses. And God gave us his first. And God gave us his best. So that we can know him through faith as our father, as the son, and as the Holy Spirit. And this faith calls us to help others. May we be those biblically faithful Christians who help those when they truly need it. Join me now as we pray.